we are on episode 20 today and today we'll finish up Topher's chapter from his perspective and we're going to kind of see what happens after Steve stands up to his sister. So he finally had a backbone against her or with her and you're surprised at the subtle change you see in him and in these boys We're going to read from Topher's perspective. We're also going to learn a little more about his backstory and why Miss Bixby is so important to him and why he even had a drawing of her secretly in his notebook. Um, This chapter gets to the point that we've all been waiting for, uh, the visit to see Miss Bixby. We have about 50 more pages in the book. We might not get to all of it, so I would suggest that you guys read it on your own. But again, we are on page, um, I tell you, in just a little bit. So find that page, and um, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Page 223. You can't always pinpoint the moment everything changes. Most of the time it's gradual, like grass growing or fog settling, or your armpits starting to smell by mid-afternoon. And even when it does come down to one moment, it's not always what you expect. It's not some big announcement from the heavens telling you that you are the chosen one. It's not some magnificent charge through enemy lines with the orchestra swelling behind you. Instead, it's something smaller, like standing up to your sister at the McDonald's, or facing off against some flop sucker in the alley behind the Walgreens, or even catching your teacher sifting through the trash and seeing what she keeps tucked in her bottom drawer. I caught her after school, Miss Bixby, going through the recycling bin, taking stuff, my stuff. It had been an unusually dull Thursday, with tests to see, how we would do on later tests, and tests to verify how we did on earlier tests. By no omens to suggest my life was about to change. No squawking crows or black cats, no dark smoky riding across the sky. It was pouring rain, so I suppose that counts for something. Though at the time, it just meant we couldn't go out for recess. We sat in our corner of room 213 instead, the three of us, Bran messing around on one side, one of the class iPads, and Steve getting his homework done ahead of time, knowing he'd be asked about it as soon as he got home. I did what I usually do, doodled on a piece of scrap paper I found in my desk, the back of some fractions worksheet long ago graded. I was supposed to take it home to show my parents, but I wasn't sure they'd really care about a B-minus and finding common denominators. My sketchbook was in my bag by the door, and I was too lazy to get it. Besides, I just spotted a spider foolishly trying to set up shop in our same corner by the radiator and didn't want to miss the chance to capture it on paper. It would only be a matter of time before Trevor or one of the other barbarians saw it and destroyed it. So, I tried to sketch it, as a tribute to its brave stupidity. I drew for the whole time, 
and was just about to finish when Miss Bixby told us to get ready to go to gym. I showed Bran, who said it was pretty good, which is what he always says. He's a little like my parents that way. It was good, but not great. Not worth keeping anyway. So I tossed the paper in the recycling bin and didn't think another thing of it. I was supposed to be picked up that day by my mom, who had all but disappeared that week, working three 12-hour shifts in a row, and who wanted to make it up to me by taking me out for ice cream, just the two of us, except the office called down to say she was running late, which didn't surprise me at all. I went back to 2.13, looking for his book to pass the time, knowing Miss B had plenty to choose from. That's when I spied her. I stood in the doorway, watching her bent over the recycling tub, hair falling down in her face, a sheet of paper in her hand. She was wearing a buttery yellow sundress that day, with a white sweater so thin it looked like it might fly off to somewhere warmer. Lose something? I asked. Miss Bixby jumped, startled, when I saw what she was holding. Not only could I see my name in the grade, but I could see the outline of the spider seeping through from the other side. She looked at me guiltily, as if I'd caught her changing the scores on her standardized tests. Oh, hi, Topher, she said, staring. Wasn't your mom supposed to pick you up? I shrugged. She's running late. I thought I'd see if you had something to read. What's that? I pointed at her hand, knowing perfectly well what it was, wanting to know more why she was holding it. Maybe she was just double-checking my grade. Maybe she thought I deserved at least a B+. Miss Bixby looked at my drawing and smiled. It's a spider, she said, building a web, obviously. I glanced instinctively at the corner I had been sitting in only hours before. The web was still there, miraculously, but the spider was gone. I hoped it hadn't been crushed. I guess I meant, why are you holding it? Miss Bixby's mouth opened and closed twice. Like she was trying to figure out how to make a word. Or how to make it work. It was an awkward moment. I was actually going to hang on to it, she admitted finally. I like it. Oh, I said. Miss Bixby looked intently at the drawing now, tracing the pattern of the web with one finger. I didn't think you'd mind, she said. I mean, you did throw it away. No, you're right, I did, I said. What did that mean? She liked it. Like she was going to put a smiley face sticker on it? Like she was going to show it to the class? Or like she really honestly liked it? Is there a reason you threw it away? I don't know. I I guess I just didn't know what else to do with it. I said. You didn't think it was worth keeping? She prodded. I looked into the recycling bin, stories and papers and quizzes, ripped up cootie patches and paper planes made out of post-it notes, a whole week's worth of work and play. I guess not, I said. 
I thought about my fridge at home, how when I was little, it was full of papers and drawings hanging from magnet clips. Now it was covered with takeout menus and school reminders. Miss Bixby smiled. The smile that makes you feel like she's about to tell you a secret. Most of the time, it really meant she was going to recite one of her quotes or tell you to behave. But in this case, the smile held even more promise. She beckoned me over to her desk and sat on the edge. Topher Wren. What I am about to show you stays between us, understood? I nodded dumbly. That means Steve and Bran, too, she emphasized. I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, so you have to promise. I gave it some thought. That would be tough. I told Steve practically everything. Miss Bixby obviously knew how things were between us. I promise, I said. It would probably be worth it. It felt like Lucy Pevensey lost in the wardrobe, like Harry looking into the Pevensey. My fingers tingled. I could keep promises if I had to, but I crossed my feet just in case. I don't think she noticed. Do you know Susanna Givens? Miss Bixby asked. I shook my head. The name sounded slightly familiar, like something I might have heard on the radio or in a television commercial. Turns out, I was way off. She's a former student of mine. She's in high school now. She's a sweet kid, very bright, but very shy. Kept to herself, mostly. Like Steve? I said, like a lot of kids I know, Miss Bixby said, one eyebrow raised. Susanna was a writer, probably the best young writer I've ever taught. I nodded, feeling a little flash of jealousy, unlike my math quizzes, which I couldn't copy off Steve on the bus like the homework. Everything I wrote from Miss Bixby's got an A. Nobody wants to hear how some complete stranger was so much better than them at something they took pride in. Then again, Miss Bixby was still holding my spider. It was her poetry that got me, Miss Bixby continued. It was intricate and complex and full of imagery and emotion. She would write her poems on scraps of paper just like this. Miss Bixby held up the drawing. Whenever she had free time in class, I'd find her working on them. Some she kept. Some she threw away. But she never showed anyone. Not that I know of, at least. Not even the few girls in class that she got along with. Except one day, I found one. Same place as your drawing. And I took it. And wrote a note on it. And, and put it back into her desk. What did the note say? I asked. Miss Bixby put a finger to her lips. I can't tell you. That's between me and Susanna and promises are promises. But I can tell you that the next day when she opened her desk, she looked at me. She didn't say anything. She never said anything. Not directly. But later that week, I found another poem sitting on my desk, hidden underneath my keyboard, then another and another, a poem a week sometimes two. I started keeping them in a red folder. 
Miss Bixby slipped off the desk, smoothed out her dress, and pulled open her bottom drawer. I leaned in in close. The drawer clicked and slid inside were half-eaten bag of pretzel sticks and an empty bottle of frappuccino. There was also a wire rack holding at least two dozen manila folders, all labeled with what you'd expect. Lesson plans and grade reports, math worksheets, and tardy slips. Miss Bixby knelt down and pushed past the plain folders to reveal a second row of folders behind, all different colors. The one in front was red. I can't let you read them. They aren't for sharing, but I thought you might want to see what happened after that first day. She pulled it out and set it on the desk. The red folder labeled Susanna Givens was bursting. Even at two poems a week, there was no way she could have filled it that full. Even if she were to spend all of her class time writing odes during recess and morning work and in the lunch line, there was just no way. Impossible, I said. This isn't just from when she was my student. She'd been emailing them ever since, Miss Bixby explained. I print them out. And keep them in here. I casually ran my thumb along the edge, ruffling the pages. That's hers? That's hers, she said. Yours, on the other hand. Miss Bixby bent down again and reached over the rainbow array of folders, only half a dozen, and retrieved a green folder from the very back of the drawer. The very last one. It was thin probably only ten sheets or so, and it had my name on the front in black marker, just Topher, no last name. She set it on the top of Susanna Given's folder and stepped aside so I could see. Inside were drawings, my drawings. Most of them were doodles scrawled carelessly on the backs of tests or quizzes. One was a photocopy of a sketch I had made in art class when we had a sub. Another was a picture that I had sold to Kyle Kipperson for a quarter, only to have him wad it up and throw it away. Miss Bixby had saved it, unraveled it, pressed it flat, and stuck it in the folder with the rest. They were all discards, throwaways. You kept these? Miss B nodded. You remember what I always wanted to be when I grew up? Before I decided to become a teacher, Maggie the Magnificent, I mumbled, thumbing through my sketches, looking at them again, trying to see whatever it was she saw in them, something I must have missed the first time. Master illusionist? And my big trick, pulling my pet gerbil from my hat. And how your grandmother tried to step on it, I added, pausing at the drawing I made of Steve with his chin on his fist styled after the famous statue of the guy who thinks too hard. Except I never told you why I gave up, Miss Bixby said. It was the laughter. My parents, my grandparents, my brother, all laughing about it afterward, talking about how I messed up the trick and how it was like a big joke. I was a comedian, not a magician. They would keep telling that story the rest of my life with their friends at the dinner table, and every time they would laugh about it all over again. I ran to my room the next day and cried. They didn't get it. 
that was supposed to be my breakout moment, but to them, I was just a kid playing pretend. I stopped paging through the green folder and looked at Miss Bixby. She always seemed so confident, so one step ahead of the rest of us. But now she looked different, uncertain. It's funny how, as kids, we get these ideas in our heads about what's possible and what's not. One day we're invincible. The next day we're afraid of what's in the closet. I grew up wanting to become a magician, but I became a teacher instead. Teaching is wonderful, don't get me wrong, but it's not every 10-year-old's dream. I shook my head. So what? So you screwed up on one trick? You can still be a magician, I said, trying to sound as inspirational as she did sometimes when she spout her quotes. What's stopping you? Miss Bixby laughed, and her laughter made me feel foolish for some reason, probably the same way she felt after she failed her grand finale. Oh, Topher, there's so many things stopping me. You have no idea, she said, as if there were a hundred secrets she wasn't about to share. But this isn't about me. This isn't my folder. It's yours. I looked at my drawings, sword-wielding warlords, masked vigilantes, and also a sketch of a willow tree outside room 213. I closed the folder and looked at Miss B. We all have moments when we think nobody really sees us, when we feel like we have to act out or be somebody else just to get noticed. But some, somebody always notices Topher. Somebody sees Somebody out there thinks you are the greatest thing in the whole world. Don't ever think you're not good enough. She reached to the desk and took up the drawing of the spider holding it out to me. I won't keep it if you don't want me to. I won't keep any of them. They aren't mine and I should have asked. If you still don't think it's worthwhile, you can put it right back where you left it. But I like it. Think it's one of your best. The drawing floated between Miss Bixby and me, hovering beside the secret bottom drawer where Miss Bixby kept a half dozen dreams. None of them were her dream, but she kept them safe anyways. I took the picture, the one she rescued, then I opened the folder again and put it on top. I can see the hospital from McDonald's, a dozen or so floors stretching skyward. It should have taken us three minutes to walk there, but we weren't moving as fast as we started in the morning, full of raisins and confidence and grand plans. I'm still limping, and Steve seems woozy. I'm not sure if it's from George Nelson's left hook or from finally mustering the guts to stand up to Christina, but she staggers, or he staggers, like a boxer after nine rounds. I'm holding the bag of fries, which were already making grease spots through the paper. In my backpack sits a tattered paper bag, paperback, and a pair of now useless speakers that were supposed to hook up to Steve's phone to play music, Beethoven, and whatever else he loaded. But the music will not happen, and the phone is dead. No music, no wine, at least we still have the cheesecake, sort of, and the french fries, and the picture the one tucked away in the second half of my now-torn sketchbook, the one that Bran discovered 
and went all Gollum my precious about. I'd planned to give it to her when nobody was looking, leave it on the table or tuck it under her pillow, somewhere she might find it later. Or maybe a nurse would pick it up and show it to her and say something like, this is really good, is this you? She would know who did it, of course, and she would smile and say, yes, it's me. Where did that come from? Then later she would stick it in the green folder in the bottom drawer. Or maybe she would keep it somewhere else, somewhere closer. The whole trip over, Bran stays behind us, so it's just Steve and me together. The two wounded warriors bumping into each other because neither of us can seem to walk straight. You might have said there was a chance of running into your sister downtown today, I say. That might have been incorrect. Oh, incorporated into the plan somehow. Though I'm not sure what we'd have done about it. Disguises, maybe. Ski masks. Though three boys wearing ski masks into a McDonald's probably would have caused its own share of problems. The odds were against it. Steve replied, a hundred to one. It shouldn't have happened. And yet it did. That's called destiny, I say. She's your Voldemort. Christina looked nothing like Voldemort. She needed to be balder and paler and a man. But throw a black robe on him, paint a scar on his forehead, and give him a stick to wave around. And Steve could probably pull off Harry Potter. At least the Japanese version. Steve frowns. She's not my Voldemort. She was just looking out for me. Only because she was hoping to get you into trouble. She probably lied to us. She's probably calling your parents right now and telling them everything. I look behind me half expecting to see Steve's father trailing us in his black Nissan. Waiting for just the right moment to cut us off and shove us into the trunk to be delivered directly to Principal McNasty's clutches. She's not going to call, Steve says. She promised she wouldn't tell. And you believe her? Steve shrugs. She's my sister, Topher. She's annoying and bossy, and sometimes I can't stand how good she is at everything, but that doesn't mean I hate her or anything. You shouldn't give her such a hard time. Me? Yes, you. You exasperate the situation. I do not exasperate, I say. Wait, what's exasperate mean? You make it worse, Steve explains. You egg her on. I kicked at the gravel on the sidewalk. Maybe he has a point. He usually does. Maybe I do exasperate sometimes, but that didn't make his sister not annoying. I glance over my shoulder. Brand is lagging farther and farther behind, like he's having second thoughts again. But we are way too close to give up now. So what did she say to you back there when you two were whispering? Steve tells me everything. Anything anybody ever whispered to him. I could hear about it eventually. Not that anyone but me whispers anything to him, usually. She asked me if I was really okay. Steve tells me. And if I really wanted her to take me home, but was afraid to say it in front of you guys. Oh, 
and she told me I should probably stop listening to you all the time. She thinks you're trouble. She thinks I'm trouble? I sputter. She says you're no good for me. She thinks I could do better. My mouth hangs. Do better than me? Not likely. I'm infinitely cooler than anyone else in your life, especially her. Steve shrugs. You asked me what she said, so I told you. Yeah, well, I hope one of her furry patients bites her and gives her rabies, I say. But then I think about it. What it would be like if Steve took her advice and ditched me for everybody else. Found another best friend. I don't know if I could take it. And what did you say to her when she said that? Steve looks down at his feet, shuffling along the sidewalk. I told her that nobody's perfect. He mumbles, then adds with a grin, and that you're still infinitely cooler than anyone else in my life. Especially her, especially her. Steve repeats. Then he looks up and points. We're there. St. Mary's Hospital looms over us. Two big buildings connected by overstreet walkways. Steve told me once that there were about 10,000 different saints, that Catholicism is like the hallmark of religions, a saint for every occasion. There's a saint for comedians and lepers. There's a saint for alcoholics and reformed alcoholics and for people who are named Joshua, St. Joshua. There's a saint for artists too, St. Catherine of Bologna, the city, not the lunch meat. Steve says that's the one who nobody watches over. Steve says that's the one who probably watches over me. Her and St. Christopher, who usually looks after sailors, motorists, and people with toothaches. Though I get an automatic in because of my name. Of all 10,000, though, I could only assume Mary is the first round pick if not the number one overall. Miss Bixby is in good hands. I can see the main entrance, and I stop for a moment and wait for the clouds to part, splitting to reveal a ray of sunlight, sign, ooh, sunshine, like a tractor beam that will bathe St. Mary's in a sparkling pool of light. I see it in my head, clear enough. I can hear the choir, but it doesn't happen. It's just a hospital. Steel and dark glass and sand-colored stone, though compared to the rest of the buildings around it, it looks brand new and imposing, like some kind of impenetrable fortress. You think she will be happy to see us? I ask. I don't know, Steve says, but we should definitely still go, right? I think the fries were getting cold. I take that as a yes. We stop at the automatic revolving doors and wait for Bran to catch up. We look like we should be going to the ER entrance instead, Steve says, prodding at his puffy lip. I'm limping. He's bloody. Our clothes are filthy from too much time sitting on curbs, rolling on sidewalks, getting knocked to the ground, or hiding behind dumpsters. I reach over and do my best to tame Steve's hair. I don't even bother with mine. Lost cause. We made it, I say. 
Through fire and flipwads and stuffed owls and sharks and toilets, we are finally here. So why am I even more nervous all of a sudden? Brand steps up behind us, hands stuffed in his pockets. About time, Steve says. We both turn and head toward the door. Brand doesn't move. Dude, are you coming? I hold up the bag of french fries like it's a ticking time bomb, wondering what could possibly be holding him back. Now that we're at the right... Now that we are right outside the door... Hang on, he says. Before we go in there, there's something I gotta tell you. And that is the end of today's episode. The boys who are tattered and worn and beat up and bruised and dirty finally made it to the hospital. They reached their point of destination to see Miss Bixby, um, but Brand is now ready to tell his secret and his story with her. Why he needed to see her, why today was so important. So find out in the next episode what happens through Brand's eyes and also just to give you the heads up we have about 50 more pages so you might want to get the book and finish reading it if possible I will keep reading it this week and uh, try to get this done for you guys so all right see you next time